Hi there, I'm David Harvey. I'm here with John Andrews, and this is the Two Text Podcast. In this podcast, we're two friends in two different countries, here every two weeks talking about two different texts taken from the Bible. This, however, is our launch series, which is bringing you a daily episode of the two of us talking about the parables of Jesus. This is episode 15, and it's called The Widow Persisted. So David, I am excited today with our parable series because we're jumping into what I think is a gorgeous, unique parable of Dr. Luke. And in my Bible, in the headings that the translators have given me, it's the parable of the persistent widow. I think Jesus has a bit of a soft spot for widows. I suspect that by this stage in his life, his mother is a widow. And it's really interesting to me that every time he references a woman or even a widow in his stories, she's always like a bit of a hero figure. And Mm. uh, this seems to be no exception. This is a gorgeous, gorgeous little parable, but packs a bit of a punch. So it's found in Luke 18. So do you want to read the passage for us? Yeah, let's, let's do it. So Luke 18 and verse 1 says, Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, In a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, Grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, Even though I don't fear God or care what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. (laughs) And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the son of man comes, will he find faith on earth? Mm, love that. I, I I love the audacity of Jesus in creating this almost constant, especially in the Gospel of Luke, we see it a lot, this juxtaposition, this status reversal, the com- contrast and comparison. So you've got this sort of wicked judge who's got all the power, and you've got the disenfranchised widow who comes out sort of as the hero in the story. I just love that. And I, I think it's not only that Jesus is, I think, having a conversation with us about actually he's challenging the big status issues of his world, which we have reflected on numerous times in our parable series. He is mm. stripping away at all that stuff that people yes. believe at a status level is important and even a reflection of God's generosity and grace in their lives. But I think also, in a really humorous sense, I think it leans into the crowd. I think the crowd love this sort of story. The crowd love the <laughs> fact that here's a widow and the judge gives in to her because he's afraid of sort of getting a black eye from her, a sort <laughs> of a, a mauling from her because she is completely uh, relentless. And, and a love again that juxtaposition. And it's interesting, if you read on in in chapter 18, Luke sort of puts together a number of beautiful stories of Jesus, the Pharisee and the tax collector, which of course we've touched on before, 
the little children and Jesus from verse 15 onwards. The rich ruler, again, we have touched on that before. And then you've got Jesus predicting his death and in the passage finishing with the story of the blind beggar who won't be shut up. And it, mm. and it's really interesting in all of those stories, there is a sort of a status reversal dynamic in every one of them. Pharisee, tax collector, children, powerful, rich ruler as a follower and being turned away. Even Jesus' sufferings, the fact that he's the son of man and he's having to suffer. And then the blind beggar who should be shut up and excluded who ends up mm. not only uh, getting included, but completely radically healed as well. And and it's a beautiful little idea that, that is continuously introduced to us in, in those parables. Would, would you agree to that? Would you yeah. see that in the parable of, of the widow? Oh, 100%, 100%. And I'm glad you want to talk about that because the two characters are so fascinating. And like you say, it's not a one-off. I think if it, was, if it happened once, if the rest of Jesus' parable were one Pharisee said to the other Pharisee, a priest, a Levite, and a layman went into a bar. You know, if all of his parables fitted into the norms, he kind of go, well, this is a bit weird. I can't make much of this. When he seems to consistently do this, and I, I can't help but mention, John, that when you turn to chapter 19, you have Jesus having dinner at a tax collector's house. Right? <laughs> so here's where I would sit with that, John. I think that in Luke's gospel, Everything is programmatic. So by the time we arrive at this judge, and I love the comedy of the judge as well, by the way, he's just like, oh, I don't fear God or people. <laughs> he actually says it to himself. But this contrast of the judge and the widow. So just roll back with me for a second. And I, I know that you love Luke's gospel. So this is, I feel like I'm, I'm teaching my granny here because you're the Luke expert. But here's where I see it, right? In Luke chapter four, when Jesus is in the synagogue and he opens his first sermon, notice notice what he what he does. The list of people, the mm. blind, the poor, the prisoners, the captives, these are not the people that are first in line. <laughs> but Jesus says, Here, I've come to I've come to let them out. The how do you when the kingdom of God is here? When the people at the back of the line are at the front of the line, before mm. the people who are normally at the front of the line. Then lo- roll one chapter further back. John the Baptist appears and he starts to talk about what, how you're going to know Jesus is coming. And he starts riffing off Isaiah. Uh, and so he has valleys will be filled, mountains will be made low so that all people can see salvation. So this gap of <laughs> the judge and the widow is brought to a level playing field. And then, of course, like I then roll back to chapter one and Jesus' mother's phenomenal moment in the Magnificat in chapter one, verse 52. Yeah. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. So if you just take the parable that we're in today as a standalone, well, okay, fair enough, interesting, right? And if the rest of Jesus's parables were about two Pharisees and a Sadducee or something like that, maybe. But I think when you step back and sort of 40,000 feet look over Luke's gospel, instead what you see is that this is a pattern. <laughs> this is a pattern of the of the anti-hero. <laughs> the, in fact, and both of these characters are interesting in our parable, an unjust judge. I mean, mm -hmm. <laughs> Jesus clearly never went to preaching school where like, it's like Jesus, you're not really supposed to take an unjust judge and use him as a, so I'm going to tell you a story today about God. There was this crook. <laughs> 
it's like, you're supposed to only use metaphors of God where he's really good, but not Jesus. He's like, well, he compares God to an unjust judge. It's very, it's slightly disturbing to begin with. And then, and then, as you say, you get this widow that comes in. So that sort of pattern that you're picking up, John, I think I'd be as bold as to say that is Luke's pattern that he wants you to see he's the yeah. only gospel writer that gives us mary's magnificat i mean that's the magnificat that's the latin name that's given to this piece if you ever go to church at christmas you hear it you hear it sung in the high church traditions don't you but i think it's setting the pattern for what jesus is going to do throughout so it should be no surprise to us then that his parables even subtly even when the parable is not necessarily even trying to make a point about that all of a sudden you get a widow and she is the key character in this in this story. And so, so these two characters are fascinating, aren't they? Uh, totally. And, and your little phrase at the end, which I think is brilliant, even when the parable's not really about that, it's almost like Jesus has created a subtext constantly of status reversal, of seeing the contrast in these positions in society. And it's now so normal in his conversation that, that actually sometimes you don't even notice it so much. It's just yes. <laughs> because, because our, our eyes are drawn to that. Oh, this is a parable about prayer, right? And, and what we don't realize actually, there's also a significant nuance here in yeah. contrasting the widow and the judge, which is part of, of this clever subtext and narrative that Jesus is just relentlessly pushing all through the Gospel of Luke. And and you could argue, of course, that trajectory carries on in the book of Acts, which mm-hmm. w- w- where we see a, a Jewish beginning and a, and a Gentile growth, sort of to use language that you used in our last episode where you talk, the invitation has grown. And in the book of Acts, we see the invitation growing. We see uh, beautiful Jewish roots uh, blossoming into branches and leaves that are now very Gentile in nature mm. and experience and context. So this is, I think this is all preparing the ground for that. Although yes. it's very much localized in Jesus's world and it has to be understood in a very Jewish context. The ultimate trajectory of this kingdom is is much bigger than the localized context he's in. And I think these, these sorts of characters lean into that beautiful, beautiful contrast. And, and it's brilliant the way he sets up the characters. Let's just chat about them for a second. So you've got this, you've got this judge. <laughs> so, but he's a certain judge. So it's not initially clear to us where's this judge from. Is he is is he an Israelite judge? Is he a Gentile judge? We we don't we don't know. We don't know much about the judge at all. But it's interesting, I think, that he picks a judge because at some level, I wonder for for how many of us this image of God actually works. The judge upholds the rules and the law and the ethics, right? And I think some of us might go, yeah, yeah, I'm, that's my image of God, right? And, and, and Jesus is sort of going, okay, fasten your seatbelts. This is going to be a bumpy ride. Because if God is a judge, what type of justice is he going to uphold, right? So that's an interesting sort of question. But then there's a factor of this judge, John, is that the one thing you can say about this judge is he tells the truth. Right. Mm. So notice that in, in a certain time, there was, this, there was a judge who feared neither God nor cared what people thought. And the judge said to himself, I, I don't fear God or care what people think. Right? So, so he's a truth-telling judge. And, and I wonder if there's a little play on that, 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 that truth's an important feature in this judge's life. For me, what's really interesting, David, is the, the potential 
lead into this story, which might have a bearing on why Jesus picks the characters he picks. It's just a little reflection. As we've often done, we've, we've tried to see where a parable sits in the flow of a passage and if that's relevant. And what's really interesting for me is that chapter 18 begins, then Jesus told his disciples this parable, which seems to sort of suggest that what happens in 17 is connected And what's really gorgeous at the end of 17 is that you have this beautiful conversation of Jesus in in the context of talking about the kingdom of God. And he says in verse uh, 21, uh, looking sort of to to the Pharisaic community when they sort of said, ask the question, you know, when's the kingdom of God coming? Um, And Jesus says these words, the kingdom of God is already among you. It's uh, so some translations have within you. He's saying among you, it's, it's here right now. It's, it's, mm. it's working among you uh, right now. And, and he, he describes sort of watching for the signs and, and various things like that. And then he, he talks about the contrast between the days of Noah, when, when people were taken by surprise by the coming of the kingdom and, and Sodom and, and various nuances within that. In verse 30, he says this in chapter 17, it will be just like this on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. And then Jesus goes on to talk about in that day, two people will be in bed, one will be taken, one will be left, two women grinding, one will be taken, one will be left. And they ask, where, Lord? And he says, where there is a dead body, there the vultures will gather. It's a bit mm. of a weird ending, right? And then mm-hmm. it says, then Jesus told this parable. Now, he, he, here's just my little reflection on this, is that we, we again, we tend to jump into Luke 18 purely as a, a sort of a standalone parable on prayer, because mm. that's what it seems to suggest. He told us so that people should pray and not give up. But what if the giving up, wasn't just the idea of giving up in prayer, but it literally translates here that you would not lose heart, mm, mm. which which might lean back into what he's previously said. If Jesus, there's almost a sort of a sense the kingdom is here, but the kingdom is coming. Uh, and actually, he then tells a parable about a woman who prays but doesn't lose heart. Now, Maybe you'd want to add in there, doesn't lose heart while waiting for the kingdom, doesn't lose, lose heart while looking for the kingdom, doesn't lo- lose heart while while looking to the God of heaven for justice. And it, it seems to connect that together nicely because at the end of that parable, uh, he says, however, when the son of man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Now, it's really, I, I often struggled with that years and years ago where I went, that ending doesn't seem to fit the parable. Mm. So he goes, verse eight, I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. Now that bit fits the parable. And then, however, when the son of man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Now, the way way I've tried to understand that last bit is it, is that last bit, will he find faith on the earth, leaning into the chapter 17 conversation? Mm -hmm. In the chapter 17 conversation, You've got the coming of the kingdom, and Jesus sort of talks about the fact that this coming kingdom, one will be taken, one will be left, two will be in the field, one taken, one left. And this sort of sense that the kingdom is here, 
but it's also coming. The, the fullness of the kingdom of God that you hoped will not be fully realized right now at this instant. And does that lean into the fact then that our prayerfulness is not just about getting justice on a particular issue, which of course that's a perfectly wonderful interpretation, mm. but could it be that it's leaning into the idea of praying and not losing heart while mm. you are waiting for the kingdom to come in all its fullness? It's just a thought, and and it might then explain why you've got the sort of judge and widow used specifically, because you've got a very extreme feel to the end of chapter 17, which yes. then leads into what feels like a very extreme relationship between the widow and the judge. And the concluding factor is, will I find faith on the earth? Will I find the sort of faith the widow had to keep going even when she didn't seem to be getting what she thought she would get? And, mm. and that ties into the idea the kingdom has come, but it hasn't fully come. And while you're waiting for it to fully come, don't lose heart, but continue to pray and lean into God. This, is, is that is that out of left field, or or do you think there's some traction? No, I think I think it's, it's you want to see. Like for me, I always think of the two levels. You have the the historical narrative. You have the historical narrative of of these are things Jesus said, right? But then you also have the the author Luke shaping his telling of the story and positioning things. And I just don't believe that Luke takes all of these stories that he knows about Jesus and just sort of throws them all into a pot and goes, well, that seems like a nice order. Like we, we've said about this several times for all of the parables we've looked at, that there's connections and threads and strings of pearls. So we've said maybe there's a thread between Mary's prayer and song at the very start of the gospel right the way through to this parable. So I don't think it's a, a big leap to think about. And, and even, even when you talk about the, the, the future, whenever you raise that question, in my experience, both in regular Christian theological conversation in pastoral life and even in biblical text, Questions of the future immediately raise questions of judgment. And, and here, Jesus rolls out of some questions into the, into the future with a characteristic of, of, of this judge. Right? So at some level, how is this judgment going to work? Well, let me tell you a little bit about the judge. In, in most of my texts, this is headed the parable of the persistent widow, right? But it could also be the parable of the unjust judge. But that, to me, sounds terrifying, the unjust yep. judge. But if you think about how many of our parables we've talked about throughout this series, what we're saying is when grace encounters you, the judgment rolled out to some will appear unjust. Right? Mm -hmm. And I even want to say about this judge, you're going to eventually love the fact. because So this judge is God. And our first thought is, He's in a certain town, there was a certain judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. Oh my goodness, that's terrifying. That's not a picture of God I'm uncomfortable with. Eventually, I have learned in reading this parable, I love the God who doesn't care what people think. <laughs> you know? It's like, is this justice? I don't care. Is this, I've got to be careful with that because you can push that the wrong way. But let me put it the way I mean that to be saying, you can't do that, God. People will say it's unfair. People will say that's unjust. 
I don't care because this is how I'm going to do justice because the mountains will be brought low and the valleys raised up mm. high. So people are going to complain about that. I was thinking, I was reading Isaiah 65 just recently, John, in this incredible picture of new creation. And, mm. and it struck me afresh as I read that. And when I say afresh, I maybe even have never noticed it before. But we often focus on if the valleys are raised up, we think, well, that's great. Get those people out of the valleys, right? But the mountains are brought low. All the people that are in the mountains are quite enjoying it. Okay. Isaiah 65 says, you're going to build your own home and live in it. Well, that that's great news for the person who's homeless, but has to work a job building someone else's house. Less great news for the person that wasn't building their own home and now has to do it for themselves. The, the, the leveling of things is interesting. And so for the people who are doing well, at the lack of justice in the world, the news of justice coming isn't always exciting news. It isn't always great. So this sort of lead up of all this language of a kingdom seems to drive into this underlying narrative around this question of how is this judgment worked out? And Jesus says, well, don't give up. But let me also tell you a little bit about the judge that you're dealing with here. He's not. I, we said this a moment ago, didn't we? What do you think about the idea of God as a judge? And immediately we we go, well, let me think about what I know about a judge. But the biblical way of reading things, I think, is to go, well, what picture of God as a judge do we have? Indeed. And the picture is, like, he is a judge that is on, on the side of those who are unfairly and unequally treated. So that yeah. even gives him the possibility of now leaning into this widow and saying, well, I'm just going to do what she wants. Because the fascinating thing for me is, I actually don't know from reading, and I assume Jesus intends this, like the widow wants justice, grant me justice against my adversary. But like, is the widow right? Is she is she in the right? That's not brought up. So, nope. so she, it's almost irrelevant to the parable whether her case is valid or not. She's just persistent and drives the judge to go, I'm going to act in her favor. So there's this real wonkiness but the kind of wonkiness that grace brings, that the stuff that we think is important. So, hey, John, I'm going to show you a case. I'd love you to give me your ruling on the case. I guarantee that my response, if you said that to me, would be, tell me the facts, right? What yeah. are the facts of the case? And let me make my judgment. But we don't get that in this story. <laughs> we get the, the judge is uninterested in the facts. The judge is not bothered about the facts, which again sounds terrible, but let me just transport it until I come to God as an unworthy sinner, and all of a sudden realize, wow, it all hangs on the fact that God is not interested in the facts, right? God is, God is not interested in, in, in what I've done, in who I was, in where I came from. There's, there's a beautiful story, John, from Brennan Manning, which I love, and I don't know how well it fits, but I love it so much, I'm just going to tell it, and uh, there's, we're there's a woman in a village, I think it's in South America, and she keeps having these dreams of Jesus, right? And so the priest hears about this and he goes to see her and he says to her, you have got to stop 
telling people you're having these dreams. People are people are getting all wound up and and overly excited about this, and and they're starting to say things about you which are putting you in a not a good position in terms of what people think you're some sort of oracle. Or he says, "See, you you've got to stop." She goes, "But I keep having these dreams where I meet Jesus and I talk to him." And and the priest says, "Well, I don't think that's what's happening, and you've got to stop it." And 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 she says, "Well, I think it's real." And the priest says, "Well, I tell you what, let's do a test." So the next time you have a dream about Jesus, I want you to say to Jesus, Jesus, tell me my priest's worst sin. <laughs> he says, and then when we meet together again, we will we will talk about this. So the priest goes away. And after a little while, he hears again that the, this woman is sharing about the fact she's having these dreams of Jesus. So he goes to see her and he says to her, so did you ask, did you ask Jesus about my worst sin? And she says, yes, I, I did. And the priest shuffled uncomfortably for a moment and he said and what did jesus say and the widow leans forward to the priest and she says i said to jesus what is my priest's worst sin she says and jesus replied i don't remember <laughs> <laughs> yeah and yeah. i love that it's just so good because because that's the judge that we're dealing with so so the the word that i'm enjoying i i i used it in a previous episode the discombobulation of this it just mm. spins you around it's like it's like you're in a washing machine and it's just bouncing you around because nothing's making sense anymore mm. but that's this judge like it's it's beautiful you take my sins as far as the east are from the west yep. you you mentioned ephesians 2 it's by grace that you are not rescued by God because you mounted a good case in court. No, nope. right? nope. the character of the judge who just doesn't care what everybody else thinks is the f- feature. It's awesome, John. It's it's fantastic. I think what's really interesting, David, is that this unjust judge he's described as someone who doesn't fear God or care about mm-hmm. men. But of course, in terms of caring about men, it really implies there he doesn't care about the opinions of people when it comes to doing his job, which in some ways, of course, that's exactly what you want from a judge. You want the judge (laughs) to be acting on the basis of what he understands as truth and justice, not on interpretations or pressure that's being put on you or Mm. or what's being manipulated here. And and I do love that about the Lord. Isn't it, we have this nuance. I couldn't help but reflect as you were, speaking and i immediately went to abraham and abraham's conversation with the lord over the potential destruction of the cities of sodom and gomorrah Mm -hmm. and abraham starts to get into this debate with the lord and and he says well look if you can find 50 righteous people (laughs) will you will you save it and the lord says i will and then and then then this bargaining starts and ultimately abraham's conclusion is one of the wisest things he says in this context he says well will not the judge of all the earth do right mm. and i think when it comes to thinking about the lord in this context and of course if we're leaning back the way into the coming of the kingdom which does have both a salvation grace feel to it as well as a judgment feel to it two in the field mm. one taken one left two grinding one take so you get a bit ooh. Oh, that's a bit interesting mm-hmm. that when the kingdom ultimately comes, there's a sense in which some people will be happy to see that kingdom and some people will not. So there's a grace and judgment paradox uh, mm. within that kingdom. And of course, to, to us in the 21st century world, all of that feels desperately unfair at some level. 
And so in the midst of the accusation of unfairness, I have to respond, well, knowing the nature of this great judge, knowing the character of this great judge, knowing the the fact that this great judge is all-knowing and all-wise and his wisdom is unsearchable, Isaiah and Paul reflect on, then we come to the conclusion, whatever the judgment, he will do what is right. And I and I think that's a, a lovely subtext in here, mm. which ultimately is what Jesus is picking up on. He's he's not he's clearly not comparing the the sort of grumpiness and not not desperately attractiveness of this judge mm. to, to to God our Father. But what he is comparing it to is ultimately when he makes a call, it'll be the right call. And therefore your heavenly father when he makes the call, he'll make the right call, which Jesus, in fact, says that God will bring justice for his chosen ones. And again, just one final reflection on that, David, which I think I think there's a double nuance here. I think if you're prepared to read Luke 18 in the light of Luke 17, and I think when he says, will not God bring about justice? I don't think that's just justice for the here and now. Justice, okay, I'm going to court, I'm suing my neighbor, I want to win the case type justice right Mm -hmm. now. But I think it's leaning into ultimate justice, Mm -hmm. that he will bring justice to us and and help us. But of course, I do think there's also an application to the here and now, which of course Mm -hmm. is exactly the nuance of chapter 17. The kingdom is among you, but Mm -hmm. the kingdom is coming. There's a sense in which we can expect the judge to act here and now, but also there is a sense in which the, the judge will ultimately do what is right on the earth. Mm. And I think there's a here and now in 17, and there's a here and now in 18. I've only ever heard this parable taught about, okay, if you pray, God will answer your prayers today. Mm. But if we're also going to help people who are followers of Jesus to realize that our lives aren't just about today. Mm. But our lives are about an eternal kingdom. And I know that's hard to get your head around when you're trying to pay your mortgage. But our lives are about an eternal kingdom, that there's a a now aspect to our faith, remaining Mm. faithful. But there's also a then aspect of remaining faithful. So, for example, can we remain faithful when we don't get the justice we want right now? Can we remain faithful until the Son of Man brings the kingdom to completion. So I think there's a lovely tension in here. At one level, it's a here and now parable. I think at another level, it's a leaning into something that is yet to come parable. And I think I think there's a bit of both in how we appropriate our faith around that. Does that make sense to you, is that? Because I, I think for me, again, that helps link the idea that he'll, he'll get justice and quickly, verse eight, but then the second half of verse eight, However, when the Son of Man comes, now remember, Jesus is the Son of Man. He's there. Mm. So he's clearly leaning into something in the future. When he comes, will he find faith on the earth? I think there's an expectation of justice now. But even if we don't get justice now, will he find faith when he comes? We're, we're trusting him for ultimate justice. The Abraham reference kind of triggers me on on that one, John, that there's this, that again, you're seeing consistency from what we expect of God. Abraham is called 
to to live out a way of righteousness. And these two words, righteousness and justice, are very, very closely linked in the biblical narrative, aren't they? So, so you get this righteousness is, at some level, I think Tim Mackey talks about righteousness as the ethical standard that refers to right relationship between people. So to be righteous is to treat others as the image of God, right? So, so there's a sense in which that the judge, the judge's actions towards this sort of widow who's just a, a non-character in, in in regular life, is actually peeks through. Like you say, it's not that this just is unju- this judge is unjust. It's that he's not governed by what a lot of judges are maybe pressured to be governed by. He's running to a law that's that's deeply rooted. So we're going to te- treat people the way they the way God intends them to be deserved. But then there's also the, the idea of justice. So you have the two words in Hebrew, tzedakah and, and mishpat, right? And, and, and this idea of justice, so tzedakah is righteousness, mishpat is justice. But, but often the Bible talks about it as a sort of justice that puts things back together. It's the justice yeah. you see in Isaiah 65. It's, mm-hmm. it's the justice that says, who are the ignored and the excluded and the downtrodden? How do we bring justice to them? And and as you say, that what seems to be going on in this in this parable. You, you have this this widow's tenacious, right? And I love yeah, that about yeah. her. And I feel like there's a big hint in there as to what we're looking for. And I was thinking, widows are actually quite a complex character in scripture, aren't they? Because so you've mentioned already, they often uh, kind of hold a hero type role in the parables of Jesus. But if you expand that to the whole scripture, widows are often unconventional. So Mm. traditionally, widows would be weak, poor, exploited, right? That would be the, and you see all these rules throughout scripture as to how you care for widows because widows end up disenfranchised. So the words of scripture tell us, look after widows because, because they are they're weak and vulnerable. And you even see it right through into the early church. The care for widows is an important thing. But then if you actually jump into scripture and say, now let me look at all the widows I see in scripture. Mm-hmm. They're tenacious. They're driven. You have Ruth you know, and, and mm-hmm. Naomi. They're working situations. and They've been dealt a horrendous hand, but they, they drive forward into it. You have the mm-hmm. widow that looks after Elijah, right? <laughs> who, is, who is just willing to sort of do whatever Elijah asks because she's so driven to, to believe this. So, so ironically enough, there's, there's this kind of tension goes on between how widows are perceived, but how they actually act. So it's almost from the Old Testament narrative, not surprising to get a tenacious widow, because we grew up hearing stories about tenacious, tenacious widows. So, so yes, her life is tough, but we don't know much about her. We don't know for sure. Again, she's just a widow, but she drives this this sort of thing forward. Um, but also what I love about it is that Jesus gives her immense agency. So she's not held victim by her circumstance. She She's not seen and not heard. She's, if your picture is some sort of quiet, retiring lady who's just trying to keep out of the way, that's not what you're getting here, is it? What you're getting here is this, is this strong character out of context taking on this judge who ironically claims to not care what anybody thinks, but at the same time, <laughs> this widow is pushing him to the edge, right? Yep. 
Yeah, totally. And and I think that tenacity of the woman, uh, literally, I mean, the implication is bruises or potentially bruises the judge. Mm. He is, he is, whoa, he probably tries initially to just swat her away. It's just another complaint in the day that mm. he's dealing with. And the people of Jesus' world would have seen that happen over and over again. And maybe even a Roman judge or a local a local sort of delegated judge dealing with their with their issues and almost just not giving any credence to the complaint because of the yeah. person who's bringing the complaint but actually it's her tenacity that keeps the issue on the agenda and the judge then uh, responds to that he he responds to this idea that this woman believes in this so much that she is not giving up on this and therefore mm-hmm. I will look into it. I will pay attention to it. And yeah. and I think, David, within that, then you get a paradoxical moment in our relationship with the Lord himself. Mm. So if we're happy with accepting that the judge is, is a, a metaphor of the Lord here, which, of course, the parable itself clearly tells us is, mm. and that the widow re- is representative of all those who are walking the journey of faith, then there is a paradox because because actually, well, the God that we talk about is gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love and truth. I mean, we've had this conversation. He is mm. a good God and everything he does is good. He is a generous God, a gracious God and a kind God. So so the image that we're getting of this God is actually, I, I, want, I want to give you good things. I want mm. to bless you. I want to look after you. And yet, and yet, Here's a woman that's having to be tenacious with something, persistent with something, relentless with something mm. in order to get something from God. And that's a paradoxical idea, isn't it? And again, mm. we're hearing an echo of the Sermon on the Mount. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and mm. you will find. Knock and the door will be open for everyone who asks, receives. Everyone who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be open. But of mm. course, the implication behind that, as used in other Gospels, is that you might ask and not get immediately. Mm. You might seek and not find immediately. And you might, as it were, seek to, to sort of get your justice in this case and not get it immediately. Mm. So what are you going to do? Are you going to then say, well, God's not interested. God doesn't care. Uh, God doesn't love me. God doesn't care about me? Or are you going to persist in believing that ultimately the God that we trust in can still give us the justice that we desire or or the justice, and this is a more difficult one for us, the justice that is right to mm. be given? Because sometimes the justice we desire and the justice we should get aren't always the same thing. Mm. And, and I think that's where we have to trust the judge i think that's where we have to continue to believe even when the judge doesn't exactly give us the justice we asked for but the justice that is appropriate in the context so it's it's it, 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 i think it's an interesting paradox within that, that that you've got a generous god that you have to keep asking and and i think again that makes more sense to me, not just when thinking of an individual event. Oh God, my employer's given me a hard time. Please fix this for me. 
absolutely, we should bring those moments to the Lord. But of course, then if we're, wide, if we're willing to widen the conversation into a bigger conversation about the kingdom and about ultimate justice, then then it is it is about trusting the way God does things, not just the way we want things. So there's a little tension, I think, within that as well. I would want to constantly push to ensure that we resist within the story an attempt to to make sense of the why of the story at, at some level that like it's such a wonky story even in in, in roman courts and jesus is saying all of this in the shadow of the roman empire women weren't welcomed into the court so the, so the, so if we're doing this in context the likelihood is that the woman is not in court. That's really what I'm what I'm thinking to say here. So she's yeah. bugging the judge outside of his job time, right? So like there's a way to maybe she's breaking the rules and has come into court. That's one way to read the story. I quite like the idea that Jesus knows that his listeners will go, yeah, a woman can't go into court to, to bug a judge. So I, I'm imagining her following him to his car and chasing him down the street and appearing at his front door and pushing the button on the intercom. Like this is just, this is be above and beyond what's acceptable in terms of like, you've got to give it a rest now, lady. But she, she refuses to. But I love the fact that in the story, there isn't enough data to, to allow us to build a case for why the woman should be given her justice. That, that what it does then is the whole mechanism of movement comes from the judge. So, because if there was, if Jesus was at a little caveat and you see what actually happened here where she'd be mistreated or this had happened or we'd go, oh yes, she deserved this. But I think again, Jesus wants to pull us away from trying to figure out, did she deserve it? And keep yep. the focus on the characteristic of the judge. It's the mm -hmm. judge. So, so don't look at, think about this in your own life. Don't look at do I deserve this or not? The question is, what is God like, and and what is God going to what is God going to do? And now, of course, we see this uh, Jeremiah twenty two. We have Jeremiah twenty two. Sort of, what does righteousness look like? What does justice look like? Well, God through Jeremiah, it bring about justice. Don't tolerate oppression against the immigrant, the orphan, mm. and the widow. So we're mm. seeing again, even these echoes of the big picture of scripture, that 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 this if you got the story almost as if is Jesus saying this here, John? If you've been tracking this story, and I mean the story from Genesis, not just the story uh, you know, that Jesus has been telling, but if you've been it's almost as if he's saying to the listeners, if you've been tracking the whole story of what God's doing, and now you're seeing that coming here, present in me, then the moment you see a widow. And then you should think, oh, we're supposed to do justice towards a widow. We're supposed to reach out justly towards a yep. widow. And then you get God saying, well, yeah, that's exactly what God wants to do here with this with this tenacious widow. It, it, there's, there's some beautiful nuances there that, that I think are worth just tracking, given where this parable is located in this mm. conversation about the kingdom. Mm. Mm. Yeah, completely. And and again, if if you follow from the persistent widow into the rest of the chapter. And it's it's not absolutely clear if Jesus launches straight into the next parable or if this is an insertion from Dr. Mm -hmm. Luke in terms of just material order. 
but yeah. verse 9, to some who were confident in their own righteousness and looking down their nose and everyone else, Jesus told the parable of, of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Mm. So again, you, you have this, this sense of a prayer being heard by someone who would normally not be heard. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, so you've got this beautiful, beautiful idea of this tax collector just putting his head down and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus essentially saying he went home justified before God. Mm. So, so you, what you've got there, if you put those two together beautifully, you've got then a widow who gets justice mm. and a tax collector who is justified and both experience that from this same God. Mm. And they are experiencing it through the medium of some understanding of prayer. So the woman persistently, relentlessly engages with the judge. The nature of the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, we don't know how long he prayed or Mm. if this was a one-off prayer or a series of prayers. But the point is, in, in the widow, she prays and gets justice. He prays and is justified. And of course, she gets justice not just because she prayed and was persistent, but because the judge is just. Mm. He gets justified not just because he prayed a cool prayer, but because God is gracious. And and so both the stories back to back reflect not just on the nature of prayer, one being persistent mm. and the other one reflecting humility which is is the big nuance that Jesus pulls out of Pharisee and tax collector. But of course, they also magnificently reflect on the nature and character of God himself, Mm. that he is willing to defend the case of the widow and do something for her that she will appreciate. But also he is willing to justify the outcast, the sinner. And of course, Mm. the last little nuance there is that the widow and the tax collector are both on the margin by by definition of their societal yes. position they're both marginalized and could be dismissed by the judge the judge mm. says to the widow go away from me you're nothing you're nobody you're worthless yes. leave me alone and society would have given him permission to say such wicked and cruel things but he he doesn't he doesn't say that god god could have said to the tax collector what are you doing in the temple get lost you're you're a collaborator you're filthy you're unclean mm. you're dirty but but actually the lord responds to both in the most magnificent way so again they they may be back to back in chronology jesus literally teaching one after the other or they may be positioned by dr luke but mm-hmm. either way, they lean into this beautiful yes. idea that actually we don't need to know the details of the tax collector's life and we don't need to know the details of the yes. woman's claim. That's not the point. Yeah, the point is true. God responds to both. And, and that's and where God, I love that that sense of a certain judge from a certain town. Right? Mm, it, mm. It's intentionally vague. Right? Let me just kind of tweak this a little tighter for a second. So many of our views of justice are governed by racist and sexist principles. So here we have a widow, uh, a woman from who knows where. And there's almost a question in the world that depending who you are, Mm -hmm. your gender and 
your race or your ethnicity does affect you in a court of law, right? We will deny that. We'll fight mm -hmm. against that. Mm -hmm. But the evidence is becoming overwhelming, really, at some at some level that 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 justice isn't being metered out fairly on the earth. But here we have this story that neutralizes that, that God's going to do justice even though you don't know all of these details because but this is the way that God rolls out justice. And I, I can't help but think that this is then pushing us also forward to the crescendo, of course, of Luke and all gospels is Jesus's death on the cross, that, that humans are relentlessly unjust. Right. That, that would be, I realize it's a harsh criticism of humanity, but probably not an unfair one. We, yeah. un, injustice is closer to our mode of operation than justice, right? right. And how does God respond to, to humanity's injustice? Well, he, he gives us Jesus, right? And, and Jesus, he dies on the behalf of our unrighteousness, the net result of which is we become righteous, that God raises Jesus from the dead, pointing out, I think, that this is an injustice that's happened to Jesus, but we now we now are gifted this righteousness. We are somehow included. Paul uses this language of being in Christ, that somehow Christ's righteousness now applies to us. So that you see then what Jesus is driving in advance of all of this is a call for us to be righteous because the righteousness we get is undeserving. And that's what I love about the, the vagueness of the parable. I, I don't know whether this woman deserved the righteousness. That doesn't matter. The moment you start asking whether it's deserved, you've got off track. Because here's the problem. The moment you think you've deserved the righteousness you get from God, you start choosing to dish out righteousness to those that you think deserve it. Deserve. And it seems like what the kingdom Jesus is trying to teach us about says, listen, you don't deserve it. So give it away to those who don't deserve it. There's, and, and that to me is really cranked up in this next parable then when it rolls into the Pharisee and the tax collector, which we've obviously, we've talked about already. So we can, yeah. you can go back and, and, and listen to that. But it's the same, the same drum is beating here, isn't it? Like, yep. just be very careful of that tendency to, to, to get to thinking <laughs> that something of deserving has a feature in how, and how you're going to get rescued or find justice. And at which point I can't help but think the echo of the, the lost things parables are floating there. The parable of the great banquet. Did you deserve to be at the dinner? N no, you got to be there. Did the sheep deserve to get lost? Was it the sheep's fault to get lost? Did it deserve to get found? Like these questions are ridiculous questions to ask. And I think that's the point. It's, yeah. It's not about us. It's about who God is. And then he's asking something quite profound of us from that. Then. Totally. And and I think like the last little nuance that I would throw in there for reflection for our listeners is that sometimes in a weird way, there can be like a, a hidden pride even in the answers to our prayers, can't there? Well, I got that because I prayed and and it's a sort of a a slightly nuanced pride there if we're not careful that I hope my, our listeners aren't offended by that but let, let, let me say I've done that hey the Lord bless me we respond that we gave money to the poor and look what God did but but we're also saying yeah but I, and I give money to the poor there's a sort of a deserved mm -hmm. feel to the blessing 
we prayed and God answered. And of course, our contribution is very, very important in that. But but of course, the the ultimate truth when you put these two parables together, if you're prepared to do that and you connect it to the to the kingdom now and the coming kingdom, is it actually, mm. well, the reason we get justice now or we're made right now is, yeah, yeah, you prayed, mm-hmm. we, we reached out, but ultimately the judge of all the earth did right. Mm, mm. Lots of people pray, but they're praying to something that's, dead or they're praying to something that cannot give them the justice or the righteousness that they need. And so actually, ultimately, this leans back into the nature and character of God that we we do get maybe in this life, but certainly in the life to come, we get justice because Mm. God is good, not just because we prayed and we are made right because God is gracious, not just because we prayed. So so it's it's that beautiful I think even then our own spirituality gets tempered. It yes. it there's no room for me to have pride in anything I do. It, even if I pray and God answers my prayer, actually the bit that I celebrate is his answer. Mm-hmm. Not the fact that I prayed because ultimately even if I prayed it's no guarantee he will mm. or needs to answer. So even his answering of my prayer is an act of grace and generosity, which is the thing I think we should celebrate the most. There is a surprise in this parable if if we think about it. We're talking about a God who listens and a God who hears. So the first thing that is so obvious at one level, but needs to be reminded that this is not some religious or, or or cultic sort of God that we just pray to silently, but but Jesus is, is sowing into this parable. Oh, God is God is hearing us. Mm-hmm. And I think this is where I tie the question of will he find faith? Will he find trust? This mm-hmm. this very nuanced Greek word that, that's used there. So will you find faith or trust? Can you trust a God who mm-hmm. is working like this? Now, I think the implications of that are very impacting. We don't know whether the woman deserves it or not. We don't know whether her her case validated the situation. That's all unknown. And we've said, because we think that means it, it's actually unimportant, right? Mm-hmm. But just think about that for a second. The next time you pray and things don't go the way that you hoped, mm-hmm. Can you reject that sort of voice that's either in your head or in some bad theology that you've encountered that tells you, oh, the reason that it's not gone the way you wanted it to is because there's something wrong with you, right? Or here are the reasons why your prayer hasn't worked. You've done something wrong. You've done something bad. You don't have enough faith. You've not been a Christian long enough. You haven't given enough away. These sort of things, like this is commonplace in Christianity to start to provide logics and reasons. But I think this parable, will he find faith? Will you trust that the God yep. of the earth will do what's right. And and don't then destroy yourself in all of your anxieties about trying to figure out the reason as to why things haven't gone the way you wanted them to. And and for me, that's that's hard. Right? That's difficult. Mm-hmm. But but I want to resist the temptation to explain how prayer works in a way that suggests. So this is now how you can control God, right? Mm-hmm. But rather a prayer that works by 
by trust. Yep. Do you know, John, and I wonder if this might be a, an interesting place just to hang our hat for this episode. Do you know C.S. Lewis's a footnote to all prayers? Uh, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I reflect on this quite a lot. I'll put a link in the show notes to it, or you can just Google it. But Lewis writes this, writes this poem, really, which he then calls a footnote to all prayers. So what he says is, this poem, whenever I pray, this is kind of just added on the bottom. I don't say it, but it's there, <laughs> and I'm remembering it. Um, so go and, have, go and have a read of it in your own time. But I just want to bring up a couple of points about it. Lewis says this thing in it where he, he basically... He accepts the fact that when he prays to God, he has to imagine what God is like. But what he does is he he says, but I realize that my imagination of what God is like is a bit fanciful, actually, because I can't imagine the fullness of God. So what I'm imagining is just a sliver of what God's actually like. So then he says something quite, quite stark. He says, so really, if I'm honest, my prayers, I'm imagining God. Uh, it's an idolatry of sorts because I'm putting a picture together. It's not the right picture. So there's even a blasphemy to it at that level. He's, well, that, that could be shocking. Like that could, that could drive us away from prayer. He says, but we pray anyway. And then he does this. He says, because God has. And also, sorry, he also says, <laughs> it's important to say, so having constructed this image of God that I'm praying to, that I know is not big enough and I know it's not right mm-hmm. enough, I then pray basically things that relate to me, (laughs) completely self-deceived and self-obsessed in my prayers. And then he says this, and this is why I love it. He says, but you in your magnetic mercy divert. And he says, our prayers are like arrows, but aimed unskillfully. So we're just like, how do we pray? Lewis is saying, he says, we just get our arrows and go shoot, shoot, shoot. (laughs) We're just firing arrows all over the place. Hey, but wait a minute. What's God like? God's magnetic. So he takes these arrows. And Lewis says this, God, when I pray, take not my literal sense, but in your own great way, translate my limping metaphors. So he says, Lewis takes all these arrows. So God takes all these arrows that are fired randomly into the air. And what he does is he gathers them all in to himself and then does this. He answers the prayers that we should have prayed. <laughs> so so we say, God, would you deal with that neighbor of mine by doing X or Y? And God, God's like, well, or I could deal with your attitude or I could make you become afraid. So, so I love this idea that Lewis says, just be aware of the fact, of course, God answers your prayers, but <laughs> the way that he answers them is the way that they should be answered not the way that we would like them to be answered. And, and I think, like I, I reflect on that quite a lot, John, and in this parable as well, I love that Jesus leaves the subject blank mm. because if we put the subject in, we then start trying to justify ourselves. And, and notice, just notice, I said that and then just glanced at the text and remembered verse 9 to some who were confident of their own righteousness. Jesus tells another parable. So I think that pattern's there, what Jesus is doing. This is not about who you are, it's about who God is. And I just think that's beautiful. Okay, so that's it for our episode. Thanks so much for listening, and we hope you enjoyed it. If you want to get in touch with either of us about something we said, you can reach out to us on podcast at twotext.com or by liking and following the Two Text Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. 
If you did enjoy the episode, we'd love it if you left a review or a comment where you're listening from. And if you really enjoyed the episode, why not share it with a friend? Don't forget, you can listen to all our podcasts at www.2text.com or wherever you get your podcasts. But that is it for this episode. We're back tomorrow for the last episode in this season. But until then, goodbye.